It's Lifeline with Craig Roberts. He's the host of Northern California's longest-running conservative talk show. He's a man with a message, a conservative with compassion. He's Lifeline's own Craig Roberts. Good afternoon, Northern California. Welcome. Just about five minutes after the hour of 5 p.m. as we welcome you to another edition of Lifeline. Keeping you company Monday through Friday at this time, as we typically do, addressing issues that impact your life, your world, and your Christian walk. The story of Easter is really one story in two parts. His crucifixion and, on the third day, his resurrection. The two events, while seemingly distinct and separate, are actually just two sides of one great event. Because without the crucifixion, there is no payment for sin, and without the resurrection, there is no victory over the grave, and thus no redemption. This week, of course, those two events collide between Good Friday and Easter Sunday. A very special event taking place, and we'll find out more about that in a moment. But first, let's welcome into the program a special guest. He is the senior and founding pastor of New Beginnings Community Church in Redwood City, Pastor Herman Hamilton. Pastor Hamilton, great to have you join us. Craig, thank you so much for having me. It's an honor and just wonderful to be with you again. You know, a lot of believers get excited about Easter Sunday, certainly, and then there are the the, uh, twofers, the folks that show up two for times at church between (laughs) Christmas and Easter. But I'm wondering if sometimes the significance of this time of year doesn't get a little bit lost. Some people think about Good Friday, for example, and the Passion of Christ and think, you know, it's it's a sad story. It's a painful story. And I, I don't want to think too much on that because I want to spend time thinking about the glory of Easter Sunday. But is it really true that without Christ's suffering on the cross, there really is no Easter Sunday? Well, absolutely. And for a, a, a couple of reasons. Uh, one reason is, uh, as you indicated earlier, uh, Jesus dying on the cross uh, is... Uh, if you will, the the atonement that is made available uh, for all who will put their faith in him. So the way I like to say it is that Jesus was crucified uh, on the cross uh, for our sins, so that we don't, so that we won't have to continue to crucify ourselves. And uh, uh, if we simply uh, are honest about where we've messed up and turn to him. Uh, the resurrected one has grace and a brand new life. So that's one reason that's important. Secondly, though, which is, I think, uh, super important as well, uh, life is full of a lot of valley moments, a lot of pain, uh, a lot of struggles. We wake up and find ourselves hurting um, from, uh, you know, suffering with cancer to divorce. Uh, and so often we feel isolated in our pain. And we hear preachers say, you know what, God is with you. But the proof that God is with us is this one called Jesus, his son, who says, I love you so much that I'm going to endure the most horrendous suffering imaginable to humanity uh, there on that cross. And I always like to say that if Jesus loved us enough to suffer death on the cross, it is the eternal proof that he is with us in whatever suffering we're going through right now. 
I was always struck by the Apostle Paul's observation, and I think it it's something that uh, certainly has given me pause in my own life. Uh, maybe it ought for all of us. I don't know. When he talked about wanting to know Christ in the power of his resurrection and in the fellowship of his sufferings. Now, the power of his resurrection part, we all get excited about that. We look at that and say, wow, boy, there's healing and there's restoration and there's reconciliation and revitalization and all those great R-words, all wrapped up in the power of his resurrection, but in the fellowship of his sufferings? Ooh, that, mm-hmm. that kind of gets sticky. That I, I don't know if I want to go there. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That's, that's, and, and if you notice that passage in Philippians very closely, all uses the language Christ Jesus. So it, it's a little insight about Paul. Whenever you use the language Christ Jesus, he's primarily talking about post-resurrection, Jesus on the other side of his resurrection, the, the living Lord. And what he's saying to us is that that living Lord, uh, to fully know him, uh, you, you, you don't just want to know him in the power and the glory and in the victories that he brings in our lives, but we also want to know him in, in, in how he is suffering right now. And one of the ways that he's suffering is that he enters into our suffering. And, uh, and he knows us uniquely in suffering. So as Christians followers of Jesus, we too must be willing to enter into the suffering of others, the suffering of others. Uh, and that's how they know that Jesus is present. And that's how we live out our faithfulness to Jesus by being willing to to engage in other people's suffering along with them. It's a pretty incredible thing to call that. It is indeed, and I think it ought to cause every believer to pause and to reflect and think about those words. And, and I think, too, about not just entering into a spirit of, of, um, of repentance and pondering the meaning, the significance of God loving his creation, mankind, so much that he would sacrifice his only son on the cross, the anniversary mm. of which we, of course, mark on Friday, and then would reach down and would literally pull his son out of the grave, mm. miraculously so. And, you know, yeah. it's interesting. You look at the, the account of Christ's resurrection, um, it, it should be lost on no one that uh, the, the, not only did the Roman centurions, the Roman guards, know nothing about what really happened. <laughs> They're trying to figure out how the dead guy rolled away the stone. That's right. And then the two first two individuals that Jesus encounters— um, you would think, well, you know, if this story was being made up, you'd want to find people that have a good reputation. You'd find somebody that's an important individual, well-respected and within the community, and you'd say that, well, he ran into them. No, the first two people that we find that have an encounter with Jesus after the resurrection are both women. Yes, 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 yes. No question about it. And uh, I always like to say, and so in a sense, in a real sense, they are the first evangelists. They are the first preachers. They are the first proclaimers. They're the first people to go share the good news. Uh, That's what the word gospel means, the good news. The good news is that death has been overthrown, that evil has been defeated, that injustice uh, has been robbed of victory because Jesus lives. 
And we, of course, are carried on or or mandated to carry on that legacy by continuing to proclaim and share the good news as as part of the evangel, as part of the gospel. And, of course, we celebrate the significance of what all of this means on Easter Sunday. And toward that end, there's a very special event that's taking place as part of your congregation, New Beginnings Community Church, that's going to be this Sunday, Easter Sunday, April the 1st, at the Flint Center for the Performing Arts down in Cupertino. Tell us more about that, Pastor Hamilton. Well, it's a wonderful opportunity. We uh, we go to the Friends Center in order to uh, not just house our community, but to give us a chance to reach out across the bay. And of course, you know about our church. We are we are an extremely diverse community in this remarkable uh, congregation called New Beginnings, uh, worshiping together on any given Sunday, uh, and on this coming Sunday, we're going to gather that community and all of our friends and families and others uh, at the Flint Center for a, a remarkable uh, Easter celebration. And if you know anything about the uh, Flint Center, it is a performing arts center uh, there at the Andrews uh, College campus. And so we're going to have about a 70 or 75 minute uh, worship service gathering, we call them. And it's going to take advantage of all of the technological capacity of that facility uh, we're going to have energetic and incredible music and dance that reflects uh, both contemporary and urban uh, gospel music, uh, really uh, celebrating the, the fact that Jesus lives. At 8.30, we're going to have something called the Jerusalem Marketplace. And listen, you guys are listening. You do not want to miss this, uh, that we we transformed the entire kind of front yard, if you will, of the Flint Center into we've gone back 2,000 years. We have tons of people in, in um, costumes at the place. We're going to have a DJ uh, playing all types of music that reflects that era. Uh, we're going to have food and live animals moving around, a petting zoo. We're going to have something called a blessing center. This is, this is one of my most favorite uh, parts. In the Jewish tradition, they have a ceremony whereby parents bless their kids. They offer a blessing oftentimes using Moses' blessings uh, uh, over the people. They offer a blessing over their kids. They speak those blessings in the lives of kids. So we've got a blessing table where you can bring your friends and family. We've got a little thing that's structured so we'll help you out. Some people can't even get into a decent relationship, and some folks can't hold on to, uh, can't uh, move up the ladder in terms of their careers. Primarily, hidden beneath the surface of their lives is this, inability to forgive themselves for something that took place. And so that's going to, I'm going to deal with that and deal with how Jesus' death on the cross uh, has opened up not only the opportunity for us to be forgiven by him, uh, but for us to forgive ourselves. And I'm going to be pretty practical with how to do that. And uh, I'm excited. I'm, I'm more excited about this Easter message than I have. I've preached about 27 of them in the last 27 years. And this will be, I'm more excited about this piece of message than any I've preached before. Well, and certainly listening to the overall description of what's going to be taking place again this coming Sunday, April the 1st, that will begin with the service at 10 a.m., but don't forget that Jerusalem Marketplace that Pastor Hamblin spoke of that will be open at 8.30 a.m. in front of the Flint Center. All of this happening at the Flint Center for the Performing Arts in Cupertino. Free entry, complimentary parking, child care, by the way, will be provided from uh, six months old to kindergarten during the service. You can start arriving for that 
at 9.40 a.m. Details available on the web at nbccbayarea.com. Think of New Beginnings Community Church, nbccbayarea.com. Pastor Herman Hamilton, thanks so much for the time and sharing, and uh, Godspeed on Sunday service. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. We're going to spend some time in this portion of the program talking about power. Now, at least you think we're going to dive into a bit of a thesis on how to reduce your energy bills and (laughs) save money. Uh, No, not quite that kind of power. But power, nevertheless, a topic that while most of us don't spend a lot of time thinking about in a direct fashion, we nevertheless are engaged in it. Some of us exercise it. Others have a thirst or a yearning for it. It's something that we think about at certain levels, and yet we have this very odd relationship with power. We know certainly that the old adage of what is it, power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. But what of our relationship to this topic of power from a spiritual standpoint? My next guest tonight has taken some time to dive deeper into this very equation, and he details his findings and really kind of kind of pulling back, so to speak, the, the layers of the onion to help us better understand our relationship to power inside the pages of Playing God, Redeeming the Gift of Power. It is written by author, executive editor of Christianity Today, Andy Crouch. And Andy, thanks so much for being on the program with us. Thank you, Craig. I'm delighted to be here. Fascinating topic. It's something that, as I say, well, we probably don't get up every day and think specifically about this topic. It's one that we're we're tied into on a day by day basis, and a lot of us find ourselves even in this in this struggle for or against power of one sort or another, uh, literally daily, don't we? It's part of being a human being. I think it's actually part of being a living. Any living creature uh, has some kind of power because power in the most basic sense, is just the ability to make a difference in the world, to make some kind of change in the world. And if you're alive, you're doing that one way or another. But as human beings, we have much more complex kinds of power than other creatures do, other parts of creation do. And that's ultimately because we're, we're made in the image of God in, in a way that other creatures aren't. And I think that's why every human being, um, you know, you mentioned a yearning for power. Every human being kind of wants room to to make something of value and worth. But then also this has become very distorted uh, by our own sin and the ways that we've uh, distanced ourselves from God. Indeed, we see uh, laid out literally from the Garden of Eden uh, the capacity of power to either do good or do evil, and then it seems as if it's been a, a history-long, lifelong struggle for mankind in trying to deal with well, what exactly is our relationship to power? What do we do with it? Why do we yearn for it? How do we corrupt it? How do we drive it in the right direction so that it can, in fact, do more good than it does evil? You know, when you, when you lay it out like that, you realize, in a way, the whole story of Scripture is a story about power. It's about the original power that human beings were meant to have. They're made in the image of God. They're the climax of creation in Genesis 1. And they're given dominion. You know, that's a power word over the whole creation. These very frail, vulnerable creatures, just like you and me, are, are told that they're to have dominion over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and, you know, all this stuff that pre-technological humanity couldn't directly control. And yet they're given this vision that they're there to represent the Creator in the midst of creation. 
But then something goes very wrong, and I think you'd sum it up by saying they try to uh, declare, depend, uh, declare independence from God. They try to separate themselves from God and use their power for themselves. And the power that we were meant to have, which was meant to be the, for the flourishing of the whole world, ends up being kind of turned in on our own uh, benefit, our own self-protection. And then the question becomes, how is God going to intervene to set this story right? And that, in many ways, is, is the story of the rest of the Bible. And it really is amazing, as you point out. I mean, literally, in the opening chapter of Genesis, we see the first action of God, a display of mm-hmm. his power, <laughs> as he engages in his creative power to bring about planet Earth. Then we see later on, once mankind is about the scene, uh, first an account of the power struggle between Lucifer and God himself, and right. then later on, man's power struggle as we engage in this battle in the Garden of Eden. And it seems as if this this issue of kind of a, a power struggle with God or against God has kind of been a component from day one, hasn't it? <laughs> Absolutely. And this was actually true even in the world where the, where the book of Genesis was first written down, because the other creation stories that were told by the, the gods of Babylon or the, you know, the religion of Babylon all said that the world began with a conflict. Uh, they were all conflict stories. The amazing thing about Genesis 1 is it does not have, it doesn't begin with conflict. The conflict comes in later, and the the root conviction of Genesis 1 is that when God uses his creative power, it brings only abundance. It's not kind of a zero-sum game where if I win, you lose, or if you win, I lose. Instead, you get more and more flourishing. Uh, what happens, though, when the man and the woman are tempted, <laughs> and when they get into that, and when that sets in motion really history as we know it, is power becomes about conflict, and it becomes about competition. It's no longer about mutual flourishing, where we actually both could win. It's about one of us is going to to dominate uh, the other, or one force is going to dominate the other. And we start to believe that that's the realest form of power, that the, the most real power is the power that can make you do something you don't want to do, rather than the power that can call into being a world or new kinds of creativity, new kinds of culture, uh, that actually benefits everyone. So what's fascinating about this, then, is we really get pulled into this topic, Andy, of power in relationship to whether it's being used for uh, malevolent purposes or, on the other hand, malevolent purposes, mm-hmm. that impacts every relationship that we have. I mean, it's certainly it, it, with God, I mean, sin is w- what better description of the power struggle yeah. uh, that exists between mankind and God uh, than to see sin and, and how that power fight's going on. And not just, though, on the vertical plane, but even on the horizontal plane in our relationships. Yeah. I mean, think of the young teenager who's rebelling against his parents, and all of a sudden there's this power struggle that we see that's being displayed there. E- even the friction between husband and wife and relationships at that level oftentimes are are demonstrative of this fight over power. They really are about power, and, uh, and, and I think that's because in many ways it's the, most, it's the most fundamental thing we're given to work with as human beings, either for good or for bad. Um, and so you do find it in every relationship, actually, every workplace, every church, every family, and, and most of us, realistically, the place where most of us have the most power is in our family relationships, especially if we're parents. But even, even uh, as those of us who are parents know, children have tremendous power in their relationship with their parents. Mm-hmm. And, and of course, that's why so much of the Bible story is the story of families that either get it 
somewhat right, never entirely right, uh, and sometimes get it terribly wrong. Um, and, you know, again, we often think, you know, when we think of power, I think we often think of, you know, politics or perhaps military power, and those are very real. But when I started to dive into this issue, I realized actually all of us confront these issues every single day. I confront it in my own home, not just when I'm out doing allegedly powerful things, but even in choosing how I relate to my wife and my children, my neighbors. It happens at every scale of human society. Well, even at, deeper than that, perhaps, Andy, is that the power struggle that goes on internally. I mean, look, for <laughs> example, it, Paul talked about, you know, wow. I, spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. I know to do good, and yet I do it not. Daily I have to die unto the flesh. Don't we see demonstrated there, in that sense, an internal power struggle going on? Do we do, yield to God? Do we get, do yield to the devil? Who's going to kind of get control here? I think that's an amazing observation. And what it always, I think, uh, for many people, the real question in life is not actually, does God exist? I think most people know God exists. And Paul says even those who don't believe that sort of suppress the truth. They still know the truth. But the real question is, is God good? <laughs> and, and especially, if I serve God, well, does that mean I have to give up things I want? Does that mean I have to give up what's good? And the, the root of, of every abuse of power is the idea that, that we can't both get something good. Either I and God, I can't, God can't get what's you know, good for God and good for me, or you and I, if we get locked in a power struggle, we start to believe either I win or you win. And when that enters into our relationship with God, we've basically believed the very thing the serpent says in Genesis uh, 3, which is God's actually jealous of his power, and he doesn't want you to have all of it, so you better eat that fruit so that you'll have what God doesn't want you to have. And that's the fundamental lie, that God wants you to have something that would actually be good for you, but that God doesn't want you to have. And that's such an amazing point that you make there, because there is an aspect of this power that we define in the flesh. And I mean, we just bring up the topic. We think of power. It's the energy to drive to do something, to accomplish something. And we often think that, well, the greatest display of power is when we're flexing our muscles to use power, failing perhaps to recognize that it's somehow there's, there's another aspect that can show how powerful we can be that in the flesh might seem to be weak, but in the spiritual realm is in fact very powerful. We'll talk a bit about that too as we continue our conversation today. Andy Crouch on the line with us today. He, executive editor of Christianity Today and the author of a new book called Playing God, Redeeming the Gift of Power. We'll come back to more of our conversation as Lifeline continues here on KFAX. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Dissecting today in this edition of Lifeline all of the power struggles that we see at so many levels within our relationships, within our history, uh, really going back to the beginning of time tonight with Andy Crouch. Um, he, of course, does not go quite back to the beginning of time, but he's been around for a while, enough to be able to be executive editor of Christianity Today, a prolific writer. One of his other best-selling books includes Culture Making, Recovering Our Creative Calling. We're talking today, though, about his latest book, newly published by University Press, called Playing God, Redeeming the Gift of Power. Interesting, Andy, when we talk about the ways in which sometimes power gets distorted, we always have that sense that power is about getting my way. And if I just get my way, I'm somebody that's very powerful. And yet sometimes surrendering parts of ourselves 
while perceived perhaps in the flesh to be weakness, actually can be quite powerful, can't it? Yes, and, uh, you know, it's amazing how often you, how much time you spend in the first chapter of Genesis when you start thinking about this, because, of course, the first chapter of Genesis begins with God, the Creator, who we know as Christians is three persons, three in one, and there's that interesting moment in Genesis 1 where God actually says, let us make humankind. And that uh, Creator is already complete. He has his way, if you want to put it that way, already, without making the world. And yet this God desires to bring into being a world that's going to have all of these other creatures, starting with very simple creatures uh, in the first days of creation, as, it's, as the story is told, but then culminating in these creatures who are made in his image. He actually wants partners. And so when we think about the highest form of power, I think we do often think, boy, if I really had power, I would just say, you know, do it, and people would do it. <laughs> they would basically be little uh, robots obeying my commands. Um, and this is what we think it would be like to be God, to be able to just move things around and move uh, persons around without regard to what they want. But it seems like the deeper form of power is actually to call into being other other persons who can actually collaborate with you, because that's what God essentially invites these creatures made in his image to do, to be his representatives in the midst of creation. So, you know, we really have to get away from this idea that the, the realist form of power is control or command, and realize that actually the realist form of power is creation and collaboration. That's when you have the most powers, when other people actually take up their own creative abilities. And, and that understanding, that perspective is, is critically important, isn't it? Because if we're going to redeem power, then there has to be something worthy of being <laughs> redemptive there. And so often, as I say, I think, Andy, a lot of us mistake power for meaning that means you get to do whatever you want to do in order the other people around to do your bidding, which, as we're learning, is absolutely not the case at all. So then yeah. at the end of the day, it's understanding that perspective that allows us to see the good of power and how this can be then redeemed for God's purposes. That was one of the big breakthroughs for me, was when I realized we often talk about power as if it's the same thing as dominance or domination. And actually, that domination is a, is a very weak form of power. If all I have over you is the ability to make you do things that you don't want to do, I actually have very little real power. And it's interesting you mentioned that. I remember thinking back to a lot of the media reports, for example, over Ariel Castro. This is that guy there in Cleveland that kidnapped Amanda Berry and and two other girls. Uh, And you would read the story on the surface and see the way which he he held these girls in in the basement of this house with uh, wire ties around their wrists and chains and everything else. And you think, well, there's demonstrative of this guy being so powerful, wielding all this power over these girls. And yet the deeper you get into the psyche and the story, you begin to realize, no, this guy's not powerful at all. In fact, he's pretty powerless. Yes, and, the, and you know, Paul uh, will use the language of impri- imprisoned or slave. You know, a slave, especially in the ancient world, was someone who had absolutely no power of their own, completely dependent on their master. And Paul says, if we really get, gave into that idea of domination, if we got what we think we want, which Ariel Castro did kind of get for a time, what he thought he wanted, the ability to dominate... We actually become slaves uh, of sin. We, we don't end up being masters. And that's why the serpent's promise in the garden is so um, appealing and so deceptive, because actually once the man and woman 
get what they want, what we want, to be like God without having to be in relationship with God, they actually find that they don't have what they wanted at all. Um, and that's what where domination leads. It, it actually, strangely enough, leads to the the one who would be master ends up being becoming completely so mastered by it. Really, Satan is in the process of distorting power then from the very beginning and all the time. Yeah. I mean, think for example about Jesus there during the forty days in the wilderness uh-huh. and the number of times that he was tempted. And and I always read those passages and thought to myself, Satan, you're an idiot. I mean, to begin with, you're going to say that you're going to offer. Very God himself here, if you just bow down and worship me, I give you all of the kingdoms of the earth and so on and so forth. And I always thought to myself, how can you give God what he already has? <laughs> it's all his to begin with. He created it all. So how can you give him what he already has? Yes, but, you know, in a way, Jesus is the only human being who has heard those temptations and not at some level given in. Mm-hmm. Now, not all of us uh, have heard the promise of every single kingdom, but all of us have that kind of twinge of an idea that we're made for more than we have. And, and that's true. Uh, we, you know, we're made in the image of God. We're made for much more than we currently experience. But Satan insinuates this idea that there's a shortcut to it, that it involves domination, that it involves kind of cheating God of what God, only God can give. And Jesus is the only human being who's ever realized that's actually not, uh, that bargain will not actually work out. It's actually a lie. And if, if he went through with it, he would find that Satan had mastered him. And instead, he came out of that temptation able to, to say no. Bring us back to this full circle of the issue of um, bringing power back into the balance. First, to understand mm-hmm. that it, it, it needs to first and foremost be used for the capacity to do good. And we see, when we really mention this even from the very get-go, as we see this in Scripture, the very first acts of God are cre- is the demonstration of creative power. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I think one question to ask is, you know, with whatever power I have today, you know, you mentioned I have a, I have a title, I'm executive editor of a magazine called Christianity Today. Well, that's a position of power. So the question is, I think there's a couple questions. One is, who am I using that power for? And if the answer is I'm using it mostly for my own benefit to, uh, you know, increase my own notoriety or fame or my own wealth or, you know, any number of things, then it's, I'm probably going to end up using other people for my ends. But it might be possible to use even, you know, positions like that actually for others flourishing. And I think in the case of people who, say, own a business, so that it could be a small business or have a position like I do where you are in charge of some people, you, you actually are given power not for your own flourishing but for their flourishing. So one of the most important questions we can ask is, who is flourishing because I have power? <laughs> and if the answer is me and mine, that isn't very much like the true God. But if the answer is the people who actually are under my care are flourishing, they're becoming more of what they're meant to be, they're expressing their own power, they're getting to do things they, they wouldn't have gotten to do otherwise, then I think we're on the path to a much better use of power. If you've just joined our conversation tonight, Andy Crouch is with us. He's the author of Playing God, Redeeming the Gift of Power. Now, when we come back after a quick timeout, we're going to go deeper into this topic, uh, how we can go about utilizing the creative and benevolent power that God has given to all of us um, in order to use it for his glory, to go deeper in our relationships, not just with God on the uh, the vertical plane, but with others on the horizontal plane as well, as Andy just referred to. We'll take a brief time out, come back to more of our conversation right after this. 
And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Well, as we're discovering in our conversation tonight with Andy Crouch, and certainly displayed throughout so much of Scripture, uh, power can be used in very many good ways. We think of creative power. We think of the power that has been given to us unto salvation through Christ's substitutionary work on the cross. Uh, And yet, as we see the good side, the good aspects of power, we also recognize there's a power struggle. There's a balance between power being good, used for good, or power being good, used for evil. How do we go about harnessing, harnessing power for the use for good, for the glory of the kingdom, and learn how to become, I guess, ultimately, Andy Crouch, trustees of power. We're, we're, we're kind of entrusted to this. It's just what we do with it, huh? <laughs> yes, that's right. And, you know, the title of my book is Playing God. And we usually say that like it's a bad thing. Uh, and it is a really bad thing if you're not playing the true God. But the, really, the question is not whether you're playing God or not. It's which God are you playing. You're going to play some image. You're going to bear some image with your life. Your life will either reflect the image of a false god, the god of domination, the god who has to get his own way, or it will reflect the the image of the true god, the god who, when things went so terribly wrong, was even willing to give up his own son uh, to bear pain rather than inflict pain. Um, So it really comes down to what you believe ultimate reality is about. And if you believe that the Christian gospel is true, it's going to change, I think, how you use the power you have and also who you use it for. You won't use it primarily for your own benefit, and you will use it, especially, it seems to me, for those who are the, the most vulnerable, the least and the last and, and the lost that Jesus talked about so many times. Jesus kind of reorients our use of our power towards people who can never pay us back necessarily, who can't benefit us, but who our exercise of power can actually help them flourish. This is kind of a delicate dance, isn't it? Because we see, for example, um, examples of uh, servant leaders. These are individuals who who have power, maybe within an organization that they can hire and they can fire, things of this sort, uh, and yet they wish to, instead of putting that power to use to demonstrate how much power they have, rather Mm. sharing it with others to to empower them. It's interesting how perhaps there's a certain power of shared power, isn't there? Absolutely. And I think that's a a wonderful model. And uh, in a way, you know, I think power really is, it's supposed to be used to serve. Um, That is to say, it's supposed to be used to help others flourish who would not have flourished if you didn't use your power. So if you have one of those positions, your responsibility is to make sure that other people flourish. And that's, in a way, the deepest, I think, sense of what serving is. Well, and we certainly see that, you know, throughout Scripture. I mean, for example, God is a righteous and holy God who created us, could have easily said, well, my creation has offended me, and therefore I'm going to use my power to punish and abolish my creation. Instead, he used his power to bring about victory over death and sin through the work that his son did on the cross. It's amazing. And, you know, as amazing as creation is, in some ways, the new creation Paul talks about, which is the result of the the giving of God and God's Son on the cross, is even more amazing. The new creation is just extraordinary that God reaches into this broken world and doesn't act simply to wipe things out or to even to command and control everything but starts recreating right in the midst of it and ultimately is going to make everything new, it says in Revelation. That's real power. (laughs) The ability to make all things new, to wipe tears from people's eyes, from everyone's eyes. Um, And 
we, of course, we only get a little taste of that uh, in our own lives. We're only given a tiny measure of that, and any more than we have would overwhelm us. But I do think we have access to that kind of recreating power, as well as the sort of original creativity that was human beings' birthright as image bearers. How do we start this process in terms of, I think, probably just evaluating where we're at in this power struggle Uh, that we have yeah. With God, and uh, th- of course, that that then spills over into every other relationship. How do we go about ana- analyzing, Andy, the way we're using our power, either to good or to yeah. evil, and then learn how to rebalance it so that it becomes a-, a redemption of power? I think that's a fantastic question. And you know, I would start with our uh, with our neighbor who we have seen, as James says. James says, you know, how can you love God who you haven't seen when you can't love your neighbor who you have seen? And we can sometimes be very clever about rationalizing our relationship with God, but our neighbor sees how we treat them. And I'm thinking maybe not so much our next-door neighbor, though it could be that, but the people who are closest to us, I think the place to start is to ask, very, to create an environment where you can honestly ask and honestly hear, how am I using whatever power I have? Um, and so husbands should ask this of their wives, uh, and wives should ask this of their husbands. It can start at home. It can happen in the workplace to say, you know, I have power in this position, perhaps, and asking the people who are affected by that, how am I doing, and making sure that they can a- answer honestly. Now, that takes time. That takes building trust. But I think other people will – the other thing that happens, most of us don't think we have very much power. But when you ask other people, what are some of my gifts? What are areas where when I do this, it really creates things? They will, they'll give you insight into the power you actually have, even if you don't have a title that seems like it has a lot of power or a position that seems like it has a lot of power. Now, let's talk then about relationship to bringing that power balance back in our, in our relationship with God. Mm. So then I, so once we've started to uh, hear from our neighbors <laughs> how we're doing I, I think there's a huge place for, you know, what often the Christian tradition is called the spiritual disciplines, because the spiritual disciplines actually put us in a very powerless place. When I fast, or when I am silent, or when I pray alone, there's no one to impress. <laughs> it's not something I'm very good at. I think the interesting thing about the spiritual disciplines, like fasting, is any any human being, uh, any healthy adult human being can do that. It's not hard to do, and yet it's impossible to do it well. When you seriously take up a discipline of fasting, you discover how how, uh, sort of uh, accustomed you are to filling every little need with food, and you discover how much you need God. Uh, So I think the spiritual disciplines are, are ways that sort of train us to realize how dependent we've become on our own sense of ourselves and our own sense of power. And they, they sort of lay us open before God, and it's amazing what you discover about yourself in prayer as you practice these disciplines. And at the end of the day, it's not that God wants to strip us of power. It's how we channel it, how we direct that, how we use that power. He wants us to have true power, and more, I think, than we ever really imagined. Uh, you know, Paul, when he's trying to deal with the church in Corinth, and they're you know, taking each other to court, <laughs> he says, look, don't you know we're going to judge angels? I mean, there's an immense amount of power that is waiting to be conferred on these redeemed image bearers that God wants to bring back into his creation, the way it was originally meant to be. 
So God, you know, this is the, the, the great lie, is that God wants to take power away from us and keep us from having things we want, <laughs> when in fact God has more for us than we could ever imagine. But it's a matter of becoming the kind of uh, image bearers who can bear the weight of that and who can not be uh, kind of corrupted by it. To whom much is given, much is expected. Yeah, yeah. And that really kind of brings us full circle on this topic tonight. I sure appreciate you diving into this, Andy, because it's one that I think, you know, again, we we look at all mankind and we see a power struggle going on. We look at history, we see a power struggle going on. We look at Scripture, we see a power struggle going on. We look at sin in our lives with God and we see a power struggle going on. It's not that power is a bad thing. I mean, Thank goodness for power. We wouldn't be on the radio right now if it wasn't for power. And yet if I walked up to one of the towers and decided to wrap my arms around it, I could also find out that the same power that's allowing our voices to get out all over the San Francisco Bay Area uh, could strike me dead in the wrong fashion in a quick second. So it really comes down to our relationship with power and what we do with it. Exactly. And the good news is God is at work in all this. And uh, that very thing that can electrocute, (laughs) and in a way did electrocute his son, right? His son suffered the worst that human power can do. That God can even overcome that and has something amazing on the other side of it that really brings uh, blessing to, to the world. And that's what I think the hope that we can have as we realize that power is everywhere, uh, but, but God's power to redeem and recreate and restore is everywhere as well. You, you might initially hear the topic and say, well, this is a good book. I'm going to get a copy from my boss. <laughs> um, or I have a husband or a wife or whomever that seems to be on a power trip. But really, all of us struggle at one level or another with power, trying to redefine what our relationship with power is, and then to learn that this is not something that um, should be shunned, per se, that in fact it's a gift from God. How do we, though, redeem it for his purposes? You'll find some great insights <coughs> Pardon me, inside the pages of Andy Crouch's new book called simply Playing God, Redeeming the Gift of Power. The new book, again, Published by InterVarsity Press, you'll find it at bookstores throughout the Bay Area, as well as um, all the usual suspects, Amazon.com, etc. Andy Crouch, thanks so much for being with us. Great book, great conversation. There's Andy Crouch, executive editor of Christianity Today, author of the new book, Playing God, Redeeming the Gift of Power.